You are listening to the Rooted Podcast, the conversation advancing gospel-centered youth ministry. My name is Philip Walkley, um, and I, right out of college, got hired by a tiny little Methodist church in Grenada, Mississippi, to be their summer interim youth pastor. And when I got the phone call, the lady was talking to me about this, uh, you know, their church and how it was you know, going to be so good. I was thinking like, this is the last thing that I want to do is going to be, I was I'm not even thinking youth ministry period, much less like rural, small town, Mississippi at a little traditional Methodist church. I'm like, why am I even talking to this lady? But like something, and I really believe now is the Holy Spirit said, you need to go. So I just went to check it out and a summer internship turned into a four year permanent position as the youth pastor at this little church. And God taught me so much um, we actually kind of accidentally moved into a low-income neighborhood in Grenada. We just found an old house that had a lot of charm, and it was a fixer-upper, and it was really cheap, and it was really close to the church. So we bought it, moved in, and then kind of realized, so I'm learning how to be a youth minister, which I have no clue how to do, and I'm also learning how to live amongst people who are really, really different than me and how I grew up. Um, so did that for about four years, then moved to Memphis, Tennessee, um, uh, eight and a half years ago to serve as the executive director for Service Over Self, where I am today. Um, I'm married uh, for 11 years to my wife, Kelsey, and we have three young children, and we actually live in the inner city neighborhood in Memphis where our organization works. It's the neighborhood of Binghampton. Um, we bought a house there about seven years ago, and um, we're, we're raising our family there. Um, and, and so between my youth ministry experience and then working for SOS, which hosts thousands of of teenagers and college students every year have been involved in the life of youth ministry in some way, shape, or form, really all of my professional career, and um, and also have been involved in kind of working among the poor and serving the poor, and so figuring out how does that work. And so I'm really excited to be able to do this. Um, actually, the the book that Cameron talked about, um, we're thrilled, me and a, and a colleague of mine were kind of co-authors of a chapter in the book called I uh, think gospel-centered youth ministry and serving the poor. So kind of what we're talking about today. So if you miss some of what I say today, you can just get the book in February and read the chapter. And um, But really, really love Rooted. Cameron's been bringing his church to SOS since as long as I've been there and have developed a relationship with him. Love what you guys do. And so before we even talk any more about this, just thank you for what you do. I know it's hard work um, and it's so appreciated. We, we see so many youth ministers through SOS that are just pouring their lives out for their kids and it does really make a difference. So we appreciate what you do. Um, all right, so what we want to look at today, I, I said when I kind of introduced my talk down there that if we're going to teach, if you're going to disciple your students and teach them the whole gospel, I really believe that a part of that has got to be teaching them about God, about the biblical call to love and serve the poor. Okay, so today what we want to do, we're going to look at the, the, we're going to look at the biblical mandate to love and serve the poor, then we're going to look at the gospel motivation to do that, and then lastly, some kind of practical methods to make that happen. So the biblical mandate, first of all... Um, so when you look at scripture, right, if we were going to, you know, if we like locked you in a closet for a week and slid a pizza under the door every day so you didn't starve and all you had was your Bible and you read the Bible nonstop, one of the things that you would not be able to deny is that throughout scripture we see two truths. One, that God has an incredible heart and bent towards the poor, the disenfranchised, the needy, and also that a part of loving God well involves caring for the poor. Those are two themes that are throughout Scripture, hundreds of passages of Scripture. But specifically today, I want to look at um, Colossians chapter 1. And I'm going to actually, I'm going to grab my Bible and read it because it's just so powerful. Um, so I've been on mission trips with people who like, um, 
bring like a brand new Bible and they're embarrassed by their Bible because they're like, oh, it doesn't look worn enough. I'm almost the opposite. Mine is like so worn and it's not because I just read it like 12 hours a day. It's because I have three kids and I'm busy. And so like, it's almost like I promise, like it's, I'm not trying to be cool and be like, look how worn out my Bible is. But anyway, all right. So Colossians chapter one, um, I'm just going to read it. It's just an incredible passage on the preeminence of Christ, but there's huge things we learn about, um, about the purpose for Christ coming here. So starting in verse 15, it says, He, meaning Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through Him and for Him. And He is before all things, and in Him all things hold together. And He is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. So a few things. The word all things is repeated numerous times in that passage. And 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 this, this passage has so many implications, but specifically for our discussion today, what I want to focus on is this idea that, that first of all, what that tells us is that because God created all things, that all people, no matter what they look like, where they are, how much money they have, have dignity and value and worth because they're created by God in the image of God, right? But it, perhaps even bigger when we look at this, so, so all things were created by, for, and through Jesus, right? There's so much rich language here. All things were created by Jesus. But we know that because of sin, all things have been broken, right? The, and when, when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, it, it didn't just sever a perfect relationship they had with the Father, but everything else was hunky-dory, right? We know that all of creation groans under the weight of sin. And, and, and in fact, so, so we see that Jesus created all things, that all things are now broken because of sin, right? Um, and when Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, um, it affected their relationship with each other and the work that Adam was called to do and childbearing and on and on and on. The world we live in is broken because of sin. And, and at the end of this little passage, it says that one of the reasons Jesus came to earth was to reconcile not just individual hearts to himself, but all things to himself. And so... A part of when I, that's why when I say a part of the gospel, a part of the reason that Jesus Christ came to die on the cross and rose from the dead was was to set right all that was broken by sin. Right. He certainly accomplished individual personal salvation for his people through the cross. But he also came to begin to set right all that was broken by sin. And and a huge manifestation of that, when we look at our world, we see millions, if not billions of people that are living lives um, that are that are broken and that are that are in incredible need, right? Poverty is 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 a massive massive global issue that is the result ultimately of sin, not necessarily just the personal sins of individuals, though that's part of it for sure, but of just the general corruption that has been brought into this world by sin. And so, if we're going to first of all look at that, and secondly, when we look at the Jesus model of ministry. Right. Jesus didn't just walk around saying, you know, believe the gospel, trust in me and nothing else. He certainly did that. Right. Mark 115, he says, repent and believe the gospel. He told people to turn from sin and follow him. But he also healed the sick and fed the hungry and and, and comforted the lepers. And and he reached out to the outcasts and the poor and the needy. And so 
when we, when we look at the fact that Jesus created all things, all things were broken, and he came to reconcile all things, and the fact that Jesus walked and talked and preached a gospel with his words, but also demonstrated that good news with his actions of a coming kingdom, it, we can't, if, if we want to follow in his model of ministry, it has to be a part of our discipleship. It, it simply can't be ignored. You can't, just, you can't just read the Bible and read the Gospels and say, ah, if we got time, I'll try to teach my kids about loving and serving the poor. It's a, it's a part of the Gospel. It, it's included. It's, 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 it's not like something else. It's a part of the good news of the Gospel. So it's important. But if we stop there, if I just say the Bible calls us to love and serve the poor, right? Well, number one, you're going to be discouraged. You're going to be like, oh, man, that's one more thing i got to teach my kids, right? Or, or your kids are going to be screwed because they're going to be like, oh, man, I'm, I'm like struggling to try to read my Bible every day. And, and I, I'm trying to not look at pornography anymore. And I'm trying to be nice to my brother. Oh, i got to like love and serve the poor, too. It's one more, you know, it's just one more thing that they've got to do that, that they're going to fail at. So it's, it's vitally important that we not only talk about the gospel call, the biblical call, but we also look at the gospel motivation for loving and serving the poor. And to do that, I want to spend some time unpacking uh, one of my favorite passages in the Bible, 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 9. I'm not going to read the whole passage, but I'm going to kind of just walk you through it as we go. Um, and it's really neat. So what Paul is doing here, Paul is writing to the church in Corinth. And, and, and in this passage specifically, he's trying to persuade the church in Corinth to be generous to the poor, right? So how does he do it? Well, first of all, it's really interesting. He doesn't say, hey, I want you to be generous to the poor, and here's why. He starts off by talking about another church. He says, I want you to know, brothers, about the church, the grace of God in the church of Macedonia, right? So he's pointing them to this other church. Well, tell us about the church of Macedonia. Paul says that they are, number one, in extreme poverty, right? So this is not just like, the working poor that, you know, eat ramen noodles instead of steak dinner. This is like, maybe they don't know where their next meal is coming from for a couple of days. Maybe they don't have shelter to live in. I mean, this is extreme poverty. They're also being afflicted, Paul tells us. Okay, so they're being persecuted for their faith. So their lives are not easy, right? And, and but yet, Paul says, in the midst of all of that, they have an abundance of joy that has overflowed in this wealth of generosity to the relief of the saints. And in fact, Paul says that not only did they give according to their means, but they begged Paul to give beyond their means. Now, so I'm not near what the world would call poor, right? By American standards, I'm not rich because I work at a nonprofit, but by the world standards, I'm a, I'm a gazillionaire, right? I mean, I'm in like the top 1% probably of all the world income, right? Most of us in this room probably are, okay? But when I have a bad day, like something doesn't go right at work or like I don't get to eat what I want or my kid, you know, tells me I'm an idiot for the 12th time today, like I shut down and all I want to do is take care of myself. And then I look at this church in Macedonia and they are like barely surviving and yet they're begging to give more than they should. I'm like, how, do, how does this happen, right? I, I'm, no, I'm nowhere close to this. Well, Paul tells us, so he tells the church in Corinth, he says, he, first of all, he says, I'm, I'm, I'm not... I'm, I'm not commanding you in this. He says, and in fact, he tells the church in Corinth, he says, look, you guys excel in all these other gifts. He says, you're excelling in speech and love and all this other stuff. He says, but I want you to excel in this act of grace also. So I think it's really important that Paul is identifying the behavior of the Macedonian church, this radical joy-filled generosity toward the poor is a result of God's grace, right? 
And, and then the, the motivation Paul gives them, he doesn't say, look at this other church. They're doing really well, church in Corinth. Why don't you guys shape up and do it there? Or, or he doesn't say, you know, look, they don't have anything and they're given to the poor. They're, why can't you guys do that, right? No, what does Paul do? He points them in, in verse 9 to the one thing that he knows is going to motivate them to live a life like that and bring God's grace into their life. And Paul says to them, he says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. Right? Paul says, I'm not saying this is a command. I'm not trying to make you feel guilty. I'm just reminding you, don't, don't you remember church in Corinth? Don't you remember without Christ that you too were poor? And this is not prosperity theology. This is not like saying you didn't have money and you found Jesus and now you have money. This is, don't you realize the hopelessness and lostness that you experienced without Christ and yet he gave of himself that you might have life? And when you see that, and I love that he talks about Christ being rich and becoming poor, right? He's, he's helping. He's saying to the church in Corinth, look, when you see poverty, you should identify with them because you know what it's like to suffer. And Christ gave himself for you so that you could be free. So now you, in light of that, are free to give of yourselves so that others might be relieved of their suffering. So as I mentioned, I've been around youth ministry and kind of serving the poor for over a decade. And in that time, almost without a doubt, almost every year I hear at least one teenager stand up and give a testimony and share something like this. So like at SOS, at the end of our week, we have a chance where students can come up and share about how God has changed them this week. Almost without a doubt, every year I hear a student say something like this. Man, you know, after spending a week at Miss Barbara's house in Binghampton in Memphis, like her house was just so small and it was falling apart and she like hardly had anything and Man, I, but she was so joyful and so thankful. And I just realized that, man, I've kind of taken for granted all the nice things that I have. And like, you know, I haven't been as appreciative for the good things that I have. And so, man, seeing Miss Barbara in her life is going to really make me be appreciative of the good things that God has given me. Right. On the surface, I'm, I'm thankful that God is working in these students' hearts and I'm thankful that they're wrestling with these issues. But if we leave it at that, it totally misses the gospel. And so to give you here, let me let me give you this illustration. Let's put Jesus in the place of that student. Jesus comes on a short term assignment in the scheme of eternity. Right. He's incarnate to earth. He lives 33 years. And in that time, he sees the suffering and brokenness of this world caused by sin. He sees hatred and 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 uh, and, you know, crime and murder and natural disasters and all of this just brokenness and. And let's say at the end of his 33 years, instead of marching to Calvary, he stands on a hill outside Jerusalem and says, man, you know, after seeing all the brokenness of this world, I, I've kind of been taken for granted how awesome it was in heaven before I came to this place. And I'm going to I'm just going to go back home and be more thankful for how beautiful my relationship with the Father and the Holy Spirit is. And we're just going to kind of enjoy each other's glory. And right now we, we chuckle because that's ridiculous. Right. That's not what Christ did. And, and so. What, in fact, Jesus did the opposite. When Jesus saw the brokenness and suffering of our world, he didn't run away and be thankful for how nice he had it. He gave up the riches that he had, ran towards the suffering of this world, took it upon his shoulders so that we could have life. Right? And that's the gospel. And that's what Paul is trying to get the church in Corinth to see and to be motivated by. And that's, if you're going to train your students to love and care for the poor, you can't just say, look at all the needs of the world and look how much God cares for the poor, now go do it. You've got to say, no, actually, 
you were poor and Jesus at great cost to himself gave his life for you because that is the only thing that is going to motivate anybody to give of themselves for the benefit of others, right? I would have been burnt out a long time ago if I didn't remind myself of that every day, right? I mean, I remind myself of that a lot and I still get really close to getting burned out. It's hard work to love and care for the poor. Ronnie, can, Ronnie works with Kaleo Missions, doing similar work to what we do. I mean, it's hard work, right? Youth ministry is hard work. We've got to remind our students of that. And, and we, if we're going to train them to love and serve the poor, that's got to be at the heart of it, right? All right, lastly, I want to look at this last section. I want to kind of split into two sections. First, I want to look at another passage of Scripture that kind of helps us have an overarching philosophical approach as we seek. Because what I don't want to happen is I don't want any of you to leave here today and think, we see the gospel mandate, and yes, we're going to do it in response to the gospel. Let's go plant our Jesus flag in this neighborhood or in this you know, school or in this country and go just serve and love and give. And we've got to approach with, with, uh, with a kind of a biblical lens and a thoughtfulness to how we approach loving and serving the poor. So I want to look at a passage in 2 Kings to talk about some general principles. And then lastly, we're going to just talk about some really practical ways that you can kind of tee up opportunities for your students to learn and grow in this area. So 2 Kings chapter 4, it's, I mean, like, it's this obscure little story that maybe you've read, maybe you haven't. Um, but when I read it uh, a couple years ago, it just blew me away with the way that it teaches us about how we can and should, as the church, respond to the needs of the poor. And it's the story of Elisha and the widow, right? So the story goes, there's a lady whose husband dies and she becomes poor, okay? Um, she has two, two sons and she's, um, she's doesn't have a way to support her family and she um, and she's worried that the creditors are going to come take her sons and put them into slavery because she can't pay her debt. So she's freaking out. She's poor. And what does she do? She goes where lots of poor people go when they need help to a man of God, to the church, right? She goes to Elisha, the prophet. I can't tell you how many times. So in Grenada, I lived like three quarters of a mile from the church. And, um, and again, we lived in a low-income neighborhood. There was a lot of um, drug activity, low-income, homelessness. And I would so I'd go to the church, so people would, you know, come to the church all the time, but there was a couple times where one of the people that would, like, come to the church, they saw me go to my house, and then they realized, oh, that's where the pastor lives, right? I'm a, I was just a youth pastor, but he associated, I worked with the church. So, I mean, we had people knocking on our door all the time asking for help because I worked for a church, and that's what, you know, that's what the church is supposed to do is help the poor. So this lady goes to Elisha, and what does Elisha do? He says, he says, well, you know, who am I? What can I do? And then he asks her what she has, and she says, well, I have some oil. And he says, all right, I want you to go to your neighbors, borrow vessels from them, empty vessels, take the oil, fill up those vessels, sell them, and then use that money to pay off your creditors and live off the rest. And that's the end of the story. It's kind of like, that's a little weird story. What's going on here? Well, in light of the work that we do, it's, it's incredibly eye-opening. So I want to walk through this and look at what characteristics Elisha demonstrates that are so valuable in seeking to love and care for the poor. The first one is he enters this relationship with humility. This lady comes panicking to him, and he's a prophet, right? He's supposed to be this, you know, you know, leader, spiritual leader that you know has all the answers and can help people. And the first thing he does when she says, "Come and help me," he doesn't say, "Oh, oh, yes, here, I'll, I'll fix your problems, I'll solve your problems." He says, "Who am I? Like, what, what can I do? What can I do?" And I don't think he's saying, like, "What, what I can't help you, sorry, lady." I, I think what he's really saying is. Look, I'm no better than you. I'm, I'm, no, I'm no different than you. 
Like, I, I know that you came to me for help, but who am I? I'm, I'm nothing special, right? And he's not trying to be self-effacing. I think he's just trying to identify with this lady and get her to see, hey, look, you're a person, I'm a person too, let's talk. So he comes at her with humility, and then um, he also affirms her dignity. The very second question he asks, after he says, what can I do, is he says, what do you have? How many times when we as the church seek to address the needs of the poor, do we go and we try to find all the deficiencies first? What's wrong in this neighborhood? What's wrong with this family? What do you need? But instead, Elisha doesn't say that. He says, well, what do you have? And he, and he, he says, he's saying to her, you might be poor, you might be struggling, but you have something that God has given you a gift. Even if you have nothing to your name, he has given you life. And, and so I think it's incredibly valuable that when we go to do ministry among the poor, that we don't just say, what are all the problems? But we say, where are the gifts and the assets here? And how can we build upon those? And then we see also that he's, what he's doing here is he's seeking to, to develop a relationship with her, right? He, he's not just saying, okay, let me help you figure your problems out. He's asking her questions to get to know her so he can understand her situation better and so he can make her feel like a human being that's worth getting to know, right? And not only does he, not only does he seek to develop a relationship with her just personally, but then he connects her with her community, right? He says, I want you to go to your neighbors and I want you to involve them in this process. One really, really scary thing that happens a lot of times when churches seek to do ministry among the poor is we create these really unhealthy dependencies where the church comes in, saves the day, and before we know it, anytime the poor need something, they go back to this church instead of trying to either work things out on their own or connect with their community. And so I think what Elisha is doing here is he's, well, I don't know what he's doing, but I, I do know that it's very healthy to connect people in their community because Elisha might not be there a year from now, right? He may not be able to help her with another problem, but by connecting her relationally with the community, he's helping her be in a healthier, stronger place for the long run, as opposed to just putting a Band-Aid on her problem. And then lastly, the last two things he does is he, um, he invites her to participate in the process and thereby he is empowering her. And so what I mean is he doesn't say, well, here, let me take your oil and I'm going to go fill up all these jars and then I'll sell it and here's you a check and you pay off your creditors. He says, you go to your neighbors, you ask them for vessels, you fill it up and you sell it and you pay off your creditors, right? He's inviting her to participate. Why is that? This can look a lot of different ways, but one thing that I've found in our work is that if we come to those that are poor to serve them and we say, no, 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 don't lift a finger. We don't want you to do a thing. Let us do all the work, right? We do things like mission trips a lot of times because we know the, rea the biblical reality that it's more blessed to give than receive, right? And God has created us with certain gifts to give and to use those for his glory. And I worry sometimes in the church that we're so afraid of asking poor people to be involved in the process that we're robbing them of the blessing of giving and using their gifts, right? He's not asking her for anything that she can't do. He's asking her to be involved in the process, right? And, and, and lastly, in doing that, he's empowering her. He's helping her see, wow, I can do this, right? I, I can, God has gifted me. I, I can pay off my creditors. I have money left over to live on. I, I, can, I can do this, right? And so I think so many times we just want to come in and, and just 
make a program out of everything and solve everybody's problems instead of engaging relationally, coming humbly, connecting with the community, inviting participation and involvement from those that we're serving and empowering them in the long run. Um, And what's really, really cool about this story, do you notice that God works a miracle? He multiplies this lady's oil to fill all of these vessels. I think a lot of pushback I get. Um, in fact, when I was writing this chapter for the book, I sent it to a bunch of youth ministry friends to get them to kind of give me their feedback. And one guy was just like vehemently like, you know, if you're asking the poor to, to give something in return, that is not the gospel. The gospel is a free and unmerited gift and you can't ask them. And, and that cuts God out from the picture. I said, really, that's really interesting because I actually see God working a miracle here in response to that method. And think if what, what if Elisha would have done this? Oh, the benevolence committee of our of the temple meets the first Tuesday of every month. If you'll just show up then with two forms of identification in your bill, then we can you can apply for funding to pay off your creditors, right? And that, that's we systemize and program everything, right? And and I wonder how many miracles of God we miss because we do stuff like that, right? Instead of instead of saying, how can I get to know you and how can I engage you in this process and and how can I invite you into this? That's when God works miracles, not just in those we're seeking to serve, but guess where else? In the hearts of your students, in the hearts of the people serving, right? Because really, the poor don't just need us who are not materially poor, but we need them as well. We need to learn from them as well, and they have things to offer us as well. So when you're, when you're going out to love and serve the poor, it's very important to have those kind of, that as kind of a framework um, the last thing I want to talk about, just kind of some practical on-ramps to doing that, um, and then we'll open it up for questions. We'd love to talk about that. So um, one of the first things is, is this idea of short-term, uh, short-term mission opportunities among the poor, um, and I'm, I love that there's a session the next hour on doing that in a healthy way because I think it can be done in a way that's damaging and not healthy, but I think if it's done with some of the perspective that we've talked about today, it can actually be an incredible experience for not only the poor that we are serving, but also the students that are doing the, the, the serving. It's a great opportunity, as Mark talked about last night, to kind of expose them to an experience and open their eyes and get them to really wrestle with their faith. But I think there's kind of two big principles that I'd say in doing short-term mission trips and looking to do that. The first thing, if doing short-term missions among the poor, the first thing um, is partnerships. It's really, really the, the value in a short-term mission trip um, in, and I'm sure Ronnie and others can attest to this, is, is to partner with a church or a group of missionaries or an organization that is partnering in a particular location in the long run, right? These kind of drop-in type trips where, where a group or an organization will kind of go somewhere just for a week or even set up shop for a summer, but there's no long-term connection there can really honestly be incredibly damaging to not only the community being served, but even to those involved in doing the serving. So it's, it's really valuable to look at partnerships that you may already have or find organizations or groups that are kind of working in a specific area for the long haul and just come alongside them and say, how can we, how can we be a part of what you're doing, right? And then the second thing, the second component is really training is so valuable. You, you can't just show up for a week of mission work and do it and think it'll be really great and then go home and never think about it again. But there needs to be training before the trip then there needs to be some kind of continued learning while you're on that trip and then some reflection upon returning. And so training before the trip um, and, and, and with all of those, training before, learning during, and, and reflecting afterward 
if the church or organization or whatever that you're partnering with, because you're going to partner with someone, you're not just going to go at it alone, right? That you're partnering with, if they don't provide any materials like that, then you could create your own or you can find other resources. But the valuable, the important thing is that you just have something in place. So training before the trip, number one, you got to train your students to know and remember the gospel, right? You, you've got to teach them what what we just talked about, that we're not going because we have it all figured out to fix all these people's lives who clearly don't have it figured out. We're coming because we're all kind of broken and messed up, and Jesus is the one who really has it figured out, and we just want to partner with other people and offer our gifts to them, right? Got to train them to remember the gospel. You got to train them also to be sensitive and aware of cultural differences. When you're going cross-culturally to serve, even if you're going somewhere in America, if you're going to serve a low-income population and you're coming from a background that is not low-income, then there's, it's cross-cultural. Man, when, you, when I first moved into my neighborhood in Memphis, it was like another country. It is a different place than where I grew up, okay? Even though, essentially, we speak the same language, although sometimes it's even hard. I mean, anyway, okay. So, uh, so you've got to teach, your, train your youth to be sensitive to that. So, um, you know, um, number one, uh, the, they, you know, so that they don't say things like, wow, it's so clean here, implying... It should be dirty because they're poor. What are you, you know, we just have to be really thoughtful about the things that we say and the way that we engage with people. And also, again, that we don't come in with this savior mentality of we're going to come fix all your problems. But but learning the differences between your culture and the culture you're going to serve is huge. And then also this kind of caution about flaunting wealth and um, not putting a stumbling block before those we're serving um, uh, is also really valuable. So we could kind of spend a lot more time there, but that's the big thing is, uh, so training before a trip. And while you're on a trip, it's so valuable to spend time processing what they're learning and dealing with, right? Um, it doesn't have to be a deep, complicated Bible study. You can just be asking hard questions or asking the right questions. And some of my best conversations as a youth minister were sitting on a bunk bed at, actually at SOS or other mission places where you know, some kid would come and just open up to me because he's been away from home for two or three days and working in a neighborhood different than he's used to. And God's kind of stirring all this vulnerability in him. It's an incredible opportunity for kids to open up to you. So you want to you want to allow space for that while you're on the trip. Right. You want to allow time to kind of dialogue with your students. And then lastly, when you return home, if you never talk about it again, then I would argue that it loses a huge amount of its value. You've got to get home and say, all right, what's next? And that can be what Mark was talking about. You get home. OK, man. We just went and served in the inner city of wherever. We went and served on the Navajo Indian Reservation of wherever. And, man, what, we saw all these hard things. Well, do we see any of those problems in our own community? Is there, is there something we could, like, should we do anything about that? Could we do anything about that? I mean, I love the way Mark shared about that last night, just how valuable it is to ask your students, like, what, what problems do we see? And how can we, should we do something as the church? How can we do that? So, so engaging your students upon returning, how do you process so that's kind of short-term mission trips. Last thing I want to talk about is is the importance of if you do that, right, which can be a real primer. Um, how many of you have taken your students on a short-term trip of some kind before? Like, okay, so most of you, right? So then the big picture then becomes not just doing that once a year and saying, all right, we've done our, this is my discipleship on serving the poor. We do spend a week doing missions, and now we're going to you know, worry about something else the rest of the year. But how can you continue to engage your students in being a blessing to the poor in your own city. I don't care how rural or how urban you live, there are poor everywhere. There's opportunities to bear witness to the gospel among the poor wherever you are. And so um, also finding ways to engage your students in the communities where you are. And and some of you, I think maybe you even alluded to, maybe you have some low-income poverty students like in your youth group, which that's a, I would say that's an incredible opportunity, incredible dynamic to have 
the harder challenge is like, so Cameron, who I love, I mean, he would even tell you like his youth group is very affluent. I mean, it's, it's this totally different culture. And for them, that's a, that's a real, that's a challenge, but you've got this bridge right there where you are. So, 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 uh, the two things to kind of think about in law in kind of doing ministry among the poor, where you are, one would be, um, and it's very similar to short term trips. The first is, um, is partnerships. Again, you, you want to look at, are there already churches or organizations or whatever serving the poor in our city? And how can we just come alongside them and support the work that they're doing? Right. Um, but in addition to that, long term focused relationships are so valuable. So a good friend of mine who leads a ministry in Atlanta called FCS, um, uh, Katie Delp, um, uh, it's, she, it's the ministry that Bob Lupton started, if you've read any of his stuff, Toxic Charity. Um, uh, anyway, uh, she wrote a blog post recently, um, and in that she talked about when she was 20-something years old, she moved into South Atlanta, and uh, this pastor told her, um, said, if you really want to make an impact in this neighborhood, you need to plan on 15 years at a minimum. She was like, I'm like 23, that's almost, half, that's almost my whole life. Like, how am I? And, but it's so true. You, you will not... Just like a drop-in trip for the summer isn't going to really do anything, a drop-in like one Saturday afternoon block party in a neighborhood is not going to change a community, right? You've got to find ways to say, we're going to plant our roots here, and we're just going to get to know people here, and we're going to... Because here's what so many people in my neighborhood see. They see well-intentioned Christians who come and help and are gone a week, a month, a year later. They, they have so much transiency in their life that to have a church or a group of people who say, you know what, we're going to, no, we're not going away. We're going to continue to be a presence here and get to know you, learn from you, serve. That has such value and weight. So, so find it, whether it's a school you partner with or a certain neighborhood or a certain group of people, finding ways to say, we're going to partner here long-term and be committed over the long run is so, so, so valuable. Okay. So I just, I just kind of envision an army of youth leaders all over the country who train their students of the, the, the biblical call to love and serve the poor and the gospel motivation to do that, and then who equipped them to find ways to do that both locally, long-term, and then learn and grow as they're traveling short-term elsewhere. And I can't help but think how radically different things would look, not only for the poor communities we serve, but in the hearts of your students who will one day be adults and will continue to care about the poor when they're adults if youth leaders will take that and run with it. And that's my hope for all of you. That's my, I mean, that's my prayer for this time has been that, that the ripple effect of what we're doing in this room would be exponential in the hearts of the poor and in the hearts of the students that you serve for eternity. And, and that's, that's what we want to see. To learn more about gospel-centered youth ministry, please visit our website at www rootedministry.com Music has been provided by High Street Hymns. You can access their music at www.highstreethymns.com Alleluia Alleluia